we have turned a new leaf. I feel like we've gone from the darkest timeline to like a better timeline. Welcome to episode 28 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny. My name is Rory. And I'm Sherry. And today we're going to do a year-end review. We're going to be talking about some of the past stories of the year and maybe talk about some of the uh, impacts of these stories. And for, for my story, at least, it's kind of one of my most, not maybe not a favorite story, but a more interesting story. But why don't we start with something familiar that we've talked about before? Sure. Um, I decided that I'd bring back some information on basic income since that was my original guest lecture that got me involved with the Humanist Association. So here's some updates from a bit of research I did before coming here. For those curious about the class action lawsuit to have basic income reinstated in the province of Ontario, that did unfortunately fall apart earlier this year. Three judges in the Supreme Court voted that they could not force the Ontario government to reinstitute basic income. Before we even get to that, what is universal basic income? Or freedom dividends. Well, if I'm going to give a recap on what basic income is, it is a form of social assistance that is not contingent upon work behavior. So a more robust welfare system, you could say, but... The freedom possibilities that it opens up for people are what make it such a, an interesting alternative to welfare as we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. And the most, I guess, in the media right now, the biggest example of that is uh, Andrew Yang, the presidential candidate in the U.S. who's promoting $1,000 a month for every citizen in the U.S., I would say he is probably the most noteworthy political figure talking about basic income and really making basic income the centerpiece of his campaign, as far as I'm mm-hmm. aware. And there are already examples of this, right? And that's actually been implemented in the world. There have been several pilot trials in terms of a full-scale implementation of basic income. Would you consider the Alaska uh, payments universal basic income? Alaska is an interesting case, and it closely mirrors what people would like to see from basic income. The way Alaska's permanent fund, which is what they call it, operates is it's based on revenue generated from the invested proceeds of their their oil resources. And so that has generated a citizen's dividend that they are able to tap into to pay out to every person living in Alaska within whichever criteria they've set out. I think you have to have residency for three to five years, something like along those lines. And uh, yeah, based on that, they are able to pay out essentially a basic income to everyone and enable just a a more secure way of living in Alaska. Okay. Continue on with your update. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So that is actually the, the most, the worst news that I have to bring is just that the the first lawsuit to have basic income reinstituted to force the Ontario government to reinstitute basic income was simply not viable. We could not achieve that result. And we only really had it for a few months, right? How long did how long did it last in Ontario? Oh gosh, um, I don't have the exact sh- count of how many months we had it. I think the Liberal government brought it in pretty well near the end of their term. 
whether and it was there for... was a promise of like a year, right? Or a certain amount of time where they would have it in place. And then the conservatives got elected and then took that out. They did. They did. And the promise was actually from every major political party running in Ontario that they would allow the pilot test to run its course. I, I'm not sure whether it was two years, three years, but whatever the duration was to you know get viable research results from this study, every party was on board promising that they would let it go. Surprise, Ford lied. Yeah. That's a good slogan. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one I'm running on next term. <laughs> well, speaking of candidates running, this might be a good time to uh, plug someone who I just recently met at a London Central Library event that was hosted by Basic Income London, and that's uh, Alan Tejo, who is a liberal can- or a, a candidate running for the leadership of the Liberal Party here in Ontario. And he is, like Andrew Yang, promising to make basic income the focus and center point of his campaign. Did he quantify what the income would be? Or is he just promoting that this is his platform, that he wants to make basic income a uh, just part of his platform? Just that he wants to make basic income a, a reality here. I didn't have time to to gather his specific figures, whether he was aiming to recreate the the amounts promised in the pilot, which was roughly $17,000 per year. Did he give any details in terms of, you know, how he's going to pay for this? And I guess, how did he approach as he's talking to the public? Uh, How's he promoting this? Again, I I wish I had more of these details for you. It's actually a bit of a funny story. We were hosting this info session at the Central Library, and uh, Alan drove One of the uh, guest speakers that we had, Jesse Gollum from Hamilton, he drove her to the event. So it wasn't necessarily oriented to give him a platform to speak his mind and to give us details on how exactly he is going to campaign for basic income, how he imagines basic income functioning were he to become the liberal leader. All I know is he is in support of it and he is a potential candidate running for leadership. Okay. So it's starting to gain some momentum. At least people are starting to talk about it. Yeah, someone to keep your eye on and a topic to keep your eye on. If more parties and party leaders begin to incorporate basic income as a major running point in their campaigns. So, but I also wanted to talk about the the other major legal action, which was uh, the party, the class action lawsuit running out of Lindsay, which was one of the test sites that is suing the government for damages for the cancellation of the basic income program. So not seeking re-implementation of the program that was pilot tested, but just suing them for the abrupt cancellation, which obviously created enormous disruption in people's lives. Mm -hmm. So that's in the works right now? That is, uh, that lawsuit is set to hit the courts in June of 2020. Okay. And, uh, a few different websites are quoting the amount in damages they're seeking at somewhere around $200 million. I'm assuming it's something like the amount of time left that they had to, uh, that they basically missed out on those payments. I would so, imagine that's roughly the calculus of probably. participants times amounts mm-hmm. they were deprived of. And adding in like lawyers fees and stuff as well. Because $200 million sounds, you know, like this crazy number, but then when you add up, 
the amount of money that they lost and then the lawyer's fees and all of that. Like there's probably a lot of money involved. Oh, and certainly. And if you incorporated damages from life disruptions, like there's all kinds of stories out there. One I just read off of, uh, I believe it was the expositor was of a, a father who is feeling confident with his basic income to get braces for his children. And so he was ready to put the down payment down and get the process started. And then whoops, abruptly, basic incomes ripped away from him. And as we all know, poverty, one of the worst things about poverty is it charges compound interest. And so a lack of braces for his kids today might mean more expensive oral surgery down the road. Things just get more expensive as you let the problems accumulate. Mm -hmm. And once those braces are on, they're, they're on, like you have to pay for them to be maintained and then come off. So I mean, lucky that he didn't get them on, but like not lucky because now he has his kids without braces. Yeah, I'm I'm no lawyer. I don't know much about the law, but it honestly does feel like this is a long shot. Long shot because I would imagine if I were a government lawyer setting up this program initially, I would have made sure I had an exit clause there. Maybe. I I hope. I actually hope Kenny's wrong about this, but he, you could be on to something. Uh, uh, to me, I mean, I'm just trying to think practically here. Like, if, if I'm running a government program, I need a way, if I don't, if I run out of money for a program, I need to be able to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Maybe they just didn't expect to run out of money for it. And especially because all of the parties agreed to it mm-hmm. during the election, even if, you know, the liberals didn't get back in, they would still have this money going towards this program. It becomes a really interesting issue because you had a liberal guard, liberal liberal government who issued these, whether they were contracts mm-hmm. or however people signed on to the study, but then you have a conservative government canceling it, and mm-hmm. I don't know how. Although, if I were also on the liberal party, I would think ahead in terms of if I'm going to lose, I'm going to make sure I try to <laughs> screw the next person, <laughs> leave them no way out of this. Maybe there won't be an exit clause in that uh, particular case. Well, be that as it may, I also wanted to highlight or address one of the principal complaints that I hear against basic income. And I'm going to do that in a way that challenges the the work disincentive talk by addressing the fact that a lot of the people who benefited from basic income belong to an ever-growing class of people within the working poor, people who have a job but it's still not allowing them to reach basic income for their basic necessities. And of course, this is being exacerbated by uh, the recent decisions of the Ontario government, including the elimination of legal aid for all immigrants and refugees, uh, cuts to the Toronto public health sector of about $1 billion, changes in the criteria for ODSP, this one directly impacts basic income recipients, Uh, changes in the criteria for ODSP that move more people into Ontario Works, which of course means less money, and the statistic from the food bank that users with jobs have gone up roughly 27% in the last three years. Just to point out that it's working class people and people with a job, not layabouts who are hanging out just collecting welfare, who needed basic income and who are suffering with its removal. I think this hits London particularly really hard because I know that we have such an issue with housing right now and finding affordable housing 
And it's even though you have a job, it's still really hard to be able to afford to live. You know, like it's tough. We just bought a house. Me and my wife just bought a house and our mortgage payments are so high. And what we purchased was like a semi-detached. And so in order to even afford a house, it's just it's just insanity, right? Imagine having a family and mm-hmm. yeah, all of that. Yeah. So for me, like the most convincing argument for me that really kind of swung me over to the uh, freedom dividend camp <laughs> is was Andrew Yang's um, rationale for it. I mean, his rationale is to actually view this as a dividend. You know, we sell our data. We essentially provide our data for free to lots of tech companies. And these tech companies have profited from our information. And in essentially in exchange, we should be getting a dividend from that information as we've built up this uh, huge uh, monopoly in, in the tech space. So when I kind of think about in Canada, I mean, we also have a lot of these tech giants in Canada, like Google and Facebook. And, you know, there are certain industries that have benefited from our industry, for, from our information, but we haven't really seen a return of that. So that's really interesting to me. And now it's becoming clearer why you highlighted the Alaska cases. Mm-hmm. You're seeing information as the resource that people should be able to to tap into to receive a dividend. Is that the... The Yang argument? The Yang argument is we've given our information for free, but we didn't see a return because these companies are profiting from our information for free. So in exchange, we should be getting a dividend from them. So to me, that's compelling to me. And it, it kind of eliminates the, uh, any, you, you know, sort of it eliminates the argument around oh, people are, might use the money and be disincentivized to work. It's really about what's fair because we technically have given up something for mm-hmm. free and we should get something in return. Yeah. Is the argument not that we get a service in return? So we get like the use of Facebook in return for well, free without having to pay we, to subscribe. Sure. We do do that, but uh, I think it's disproportionate in terms of the amount of value Facebook has generated and Google has generated. I mean, we are creating millionaires out of, uh, out of our information, but what are we getting? We're getting memes. Mm. The other day, I got a letter in the mail from a company I've never heard of. So number one, they have my full name. Number two, they have my address. Number three, they knew my birth date. So I feel like I should have got at least 50 bucks for that. Exactly. Our information is valuable, right? Yeah. I mean, if you can think about 20 years ago, people like marketing companies paid a lot of money to get information to like send out mailers and things like that. So I, I think it makes sense to me. Yeah, it's amazing. I have no idea how this company got all of my information, but I'm sure it came from somewhere, and I don't know where. Like, I feel like I should know who is selling my information and where it's going, and this should all be transparent anyways. This brings up a a question to me. Learning from you and your knowledge of uh, the Yang campaign as I go, um, does he imagine this then as a a tax on wealthy tech companies? Is that how he Uh, intends to finance? He intends to finance it with a value-added tax. So uh, pretty much everything (laughs) will get a value-added tax Ah. to fund it. So not just specifically targeting tech sector and people who sell information. No. I still find this agreeable because there are many other reasons through different philosophies that you could find to charge the wealthy a tax Mm -hmm. for the gross profits they've already accumulated off of the backs of people through less than uh, 
less than honest means, we'll yeah. say. I mean, you know, uh, publicly he's positioning it as, you know, I'm just trying to create a fair system, right? Whether you're wealthy or not, we'll just kind of find a way to equalize everything. He's not trying to pit, you know, billionaires against the uh, common people. So that's his strategy. I certainly wish him luck in winning the uh, the Democratic seat. I don't think he's going to win, but <laughs> I'm hoping. But I'm we hoping. really like him anyways. I hope maybe if he doesn't win, he like runs for Senate or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or even if his ideas just become infectious mm-hmm. to the other yeah. party candidates, that would still be an awesome step forward. Yeah. Just like Bernie in the last uh, election when he lost to Clinton, now everyone's talking about um, like free free Medicare, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really hope I'm wrong. I really do. But it just, it seems like a, it'll be very difficult for him to get top spot. But he's been slowly gaining. Like he's he's still in the debates while other people have dropped off. So who are the, the main candidates now? Is it Bernie and Elizabeth uh, Warren? So right now it's uh, Biden, Bernie, uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Pete Buttigieg, and then everyone else. <laughs> what about that? Uh, oh, that rich mayor who just got in it. Yeah, was oh, I not heard about that. Campaigning in Iowa, but like how wealthy spent people just started throwing hundreds money. of millions of yeah. dollars on ads. Yeah, well, I mean, we, there are two billionaires. Uh, yeah, I in know. The race, <laughs> it's right? hard so. to define which one. Yeah, but so I'm actually not opposed to billionaires running because to me, ultimately, it's the people that will vote and need to decide and people are going to know they funded it themselves so i think i i would just let the people decide people voted in trump i don't trust people <laughs> i know but you know listen i i've always said this democracy doesn't work but <laughs> what are you gonna do <laughs> that's true you have said that multiple times on this podcast before Anyways, shall we move on to something else? Yeah. Before it gets any darker. I know. (laughs) We can segue from freedom dividends into my economic conversation. Absolutely. Um, So towards the beginning of this year, I was teaching a grade 12 university course, and my students were doing research papers on families on like a topic of their interest. And one of the kids in my class wanted to research about women in sports and how they have families and how they can afford to have families and stuff like that. I found it very interesting. I I didn't think about the financial burden that it causes to be an a pro athlete and also have a family. Um it's just something that never crossed my mind. I'm not a sports person. So this this topic is is a little out of my league, but I found it very interesting. Um, so did you guys hear about how the U.S. women's soccer team won the FIFA World Cup? Yes, I, I did. I did. Yeah, it was a big story, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because at their matches, people were chanting equal pay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, I, I found that that's when I got into it. I was like, wait, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> and then I found out that the captain of the women's soccer team is also a lesbian. And I was like, yes, I'm in. What is this story? <laughs> what is this sports ball? <laughs> <laughs> How does this sport thingy work? <laughs> yeah. So I was, I was totally in on this one. Um, but yeah, so earlier this year, the women's soccer team, the U.S. women's soccer team, they won the FIFA Cup. Before that, about three months before that in March, they filed a lawsuit because they were earning less than the male teams 
that don't win quite as much as they do. Um, so it, this all came from uh, a news article in The Atlantic. Uh, so in some cases, they earned 38% of the men's pay per game. 38%. And if less I, than half. And if I recall correctly, the attendance for the women's games were significantly higher than the men's. Yes. Which that means was also part of it. the women are making more money. Yeah. Like from a revenue. Generating from a, yes. they're gener- more. Sorry, they're generating more revenue for us. Yes. yes. Uh, for the federation. That was my next note, was that the women's team has generated more profits and revenue for the U.S. Soccer Federation, earning larger viewing audiences and playing more games than the men do. So they have won three World Cup titles and four Olympic gold medals. Um, and then just to compare it as well, the WNBA salaries... Uh, so the women's something basketball, National Basketball <laughs> Association. <laughs> the sports balling basketball The sports thing. ball is where you like, you, you dribble it versus kick it. With the orange ball, that one. <laughs> the orange ball game. They start at 50000 uh, and the median is 71000 per year. This is how much the women are making. Versus the NBA players, the men's league. They earn a minimum of $500,000, $582,000. That was the statistic I read. Mm-hmm. That's insanity. Who? Okay, going back to your like freedom dividends thing, who needs in a year $582,000? What are you going to do with that money? Obviously a mansion. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that amount of wealth is obscene, and I do not think we should be paying people that amount of money. I, I, I mean, I, I think... When it comes to the sports world, I mean, this is pretty common on the male side, right? I, I, I would maybe uh, segment it only to the North American leagues because usually the North American leagues, we're talking about, um, you know, six figures all the way to multi-million dollar contracts. And usually the justifications around, you know, once they leave leave the sport, they're not really going to work <laughs> anymore. Um, but at the same time, I mean, when you kind of look at the feel of uh, athletes, people transition to other jobs, so they live very comfortable lives after. Mm-hmm. So, and they have a lot of sponsorships and things exactly. like that. Exactly. Yeah. When you can think about actually where they make a lot of their money, it's actually through sponsorships. So, but like, I have to think, like, will I even make five hundred thousand dollars within the? I guess I would make five hundred thousand dollars within the course your, of my in your lifetime career. Probably, maybe I might get to that. But that's like one year of their pay. I don't. I'm not buying this. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they they get this money for the rest of so. Do you think their lives? Do you think people should be paid based on how much revenue they generate? Because if that if if that's true, then the women's soccer team should definitely have made more money than the men. Totally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, I definitely. But, think but then that. when you compare, uh, like the NBA, the men's NBA versus the women's, the men's are definitely going to make a lot more money. This could get really complicated, though, if you try to determine who is actually generating the revenue. Is it the the athlete who people come to see? Is it the people who set up the stadium that enables the event to become an an event in itself? You know, mm-hmm. it's a very diffuse amalgam- amalgamation of people that enables these types of things to happen. But we focus only on a few select persons. The superstars. Yeah, but I'm. If you think about it, just even in a single game, like in a single men's game, the for specific to the NBA, so basketball, they tend to gather quite a large crowd, like significant amount of uh, 
ticket payers versus the women's game. So in that scenario, would the men continue to have higher pay versus the women? Or... Why can't they be paid the same amount for the same job? Like, let's say you're the captain might, of a team. They might actually be you different You all get leagues. the same amount. I think... I don't, I'm not 100% sure, but I think like the NBA, it might be like actual different organizations, meaning that they, one yeah. specifically might be. But I think the soccer federation is not. Soccer's not. Yeah. For sure. yeah. 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 From what I understand about this, the sports ball yeah. thing. Um, but yeah, so th- I also, uh, thinking about the wage gap, it's worse for women of color, um, which surprise to no one, right? Yeah, so the this lawsuit that they filed also alleged that the federation allocated fewer resources to promoting women's games than men's games, including not announcing games early enough to allow for larger crowds. So they also claim that they spend less on uh, practice facilities, travel arrangements, and medical care for the women's team. Uh, so I was also reading an article about uh, that in the Houston Chronicle, and so that last point came from them. Um, but it's interesting because they have to maintain the same amount of physical fitness for less money. So I feel like they're doing the same job as the men. They're playing, you know, they're kicking the ball the same way and yet they're paid less. Um, so under the current contract, the women have to win more games to earn the same or more than the men. Which is ridiculous. Like, uh, to me, this is a clear example of, I mean, clearly they're making more money. (laughs) They definitely should be paid more. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. it. Does seem very cut and dry in terms of because if it isn't really, I mean, this the federation is literally earning all their profits from women. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and passing the profits over to the men as well, even though they're doing less work because they're playing less games, right? Yeah, for sure. It's an it's an interesting case because often people cite that women have babies, and so therefore they have to go off of their pay. And I've read about Nike who deducts or um, subtracts some of their pay when they get pregnant. Uh, And they've been very criticized about that. And they're going to stop doing that apparently. But um, women have to have the babies like we're, we're genetically like biologically, we have to do the babies, but we shouldn't be penalized for making the babies. You know, we have to populate this earth, not overpopulate, but you know, we have to bring people into the world. The next generation. So why why are women penalized for that sort of thing? So that's like the only reasoning really that I've heard that women get paid less because of our biology. But I really don't like, you know, it's it's this amazing stark contrast in this world of sports that we're looking at, but it happens outside of the world of sports as well. Uh, so I just find it very interesting uh, that the the U.S. women's soccer team has started challenging this because you think about how how can you really live and be a professional sports player on something like 50,000 a year and you have a family and you know that's not that's not livable they just want a living living wage they want to be able to do what they're good at and they can only do it for a certain amount of time the same as the men where you can only Mm -hmm. be you know a sports player for a certain amount of time before your body gives out. Yeah, you would think that according to the, you know, argument that an athlete needs to be paid more because their body is going to wear out from the extreme stress and wear and tear, women should earn more based on that argument too since they have the potential to lose some of their prime playing years to a biological imperative if they make the choice to have children. Mhm. 
Yeah. So they filed that lawsuit, and then in November, uh, they were granted class status so they can file the lawsuit as a group with all 28 plaintiffs listed. So they don't have to file individually. So that was a big win for them uh, this year, and it's set to go to trial in May 2020. So we'll get to see that. We'll stay tuned in the future I to the sports news. think an update will be needed. Oh, man, I'm not good at the sports news stuff. <laughs> I just find it, I, I was very fascinated by this whole thing this year, and I'm so glad that women are standing up and saying, we want equal pay. This is not okay anymore. Uh, we've seen it in many different industries. We saw it in, you know, in Hollywood, a lot of female actresses coming out and saying, here's what I make. Here's what my co-star made. It's not the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As much as I'm inclined to not weep for the millionaires who are making less millions than the other millionaires. I, in principle, completely agree with the actresses, the athletes. In terms of pay equity, it's time. Yeah. And all you're asking for is just some of that money, right? Yeah. (laughs) In return for standing up for them. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, my story. My story is about a really big telescope. And... This telescope is called the TMT. It's the uh, 30-meter telescope. Very creative name for the telescope. The telescope is 30 meters wide. So if you kind of think about it, uh, I believe like the Hubble telescope is only maybe 2 meters, something like this. So this telescope is huge. It is massive. How do you even... Okay, this is going to sound like a stupid question. How do you even look in a telescope like that? They would have to like like taper it down to like... I don't know. Ah, so uh, actually, this the this telescope is uh, uses a bunch of mirrors to basically bounce light back and forth. So it's not very long. Oh. It, it kind of keeps bouncing light back and forth into smaller and smaller focus. So oh, okay, and you don't distort yeah. any of the image. No, no. no. Oh, so okay. this because this mirror is so big, it's actually made up of uh, four hundred ninety two smaller mirrors that they have to like put together. And then wow. it's, it's the combination of all these mirrors that can move individually as well, that can kind of bend the light to uh, where it needs to be. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. I find, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know much about science, but I love science when I hear about it. <laughs> yeah. So this telescope is, uh, they're hoping to build it on uh, a mountain in Hawaii, on uh, Monta Kea. Um, but it's recently... Uh, not recently, but over the past year, it's run into some problems. They haven't started building it because there's been a lot of protests from uh, the indigenous uh, natives of Hawaii. Uh, so the indigenous natives believe the mountain is a sacred mountain. Uh, they currently have uh, a few telescopes on the mountain already, but essentially the natives are, or the indigenous people have decided, you know, that's it. No, no more telescopes on this mountain. This, the reason why this mountain is so important, at least for astronomers, is because uh, it is way above the cloud line. So there's a very clear sky above this mountain. They need these clear skies in order to, you know, peer into the universe. And it's also on the northern hemisphere of the world. So you can see the sky in the northern hemisphere. There's a equivalent very large telescope on the southern hemisphere. And so that telescope can see the sky in the southern hemisphere. So they really need a telescope on the northern hemisphere. And they really, the, their top 
preference is to have this Hawaii site because the sky is just very clear. It's very, very high up. So it's absolutely pristine. So obviously, scientists uh, went through their process of trying to get approvals, but uh, indigenous people did not want them to build. And there were lots of protests, and they brought in a lot of celebrities to try to uh, increase the awareness. So pretty much they did a polling about a year ago in terms of, you know, uh, the, the amount of people that would support building this telescope. At about a year ago, 72% of native Hawaiians supported the telescope. They said, this is great. But given all this negative press and this attention, as of now, the polling says it has dropped down to 27% support. Wow, that's a significant drop. Significant drop. So it really does bring up an interesting question because the only reason why um, there's this resistance is because people feel, uh, the indigenous people, which obviously this is their land, feel like this mountain is sacred land and no one should be building anything on it. They, they believe, you know, there's a lot of spiritual meaning for them. Uh, and obviously for... I, I, the counterpart would be for scientists, this land, this mountaintop is also pretty sacred for them because it is one of the only locations in the world where we're able to actually discover, uh, you know, new things about the universe, peer into the beginnings of the universe. So this is a very interesting challenge because you're fighting two groups that really believe this is important to them, this uh, this particular mountaintop. So, uh, yeah. It's such a tough issue because we have taken so much, as colonizers, we have taken so much from the indigenous people. And we're like, hey, let's just have this one more thing. Like, mm-hmm. it's always this one more thing. And l- let me give you some stats in terms of the native population there. So in Hawaii, in 1778, there were about 690 thousand native hawaiians there by 1920 there were only 22,600 left huge population decrease from sad, yeah from uh, the various diseases that europeans brought over etc so i mean there's a lot of historical context right about the colonization mm-hmm. of hawaii but at the same time it's you know there there are a lot of uh, universities and like educators in hawaii who are trying to kind of plead their case. I mean, clearly everyone understands the history of the colonization of Hawaii, but there's a lot of like educators and university professors, even uh, indigenous scientists who are uh, putting out like YouTube videos trying to, you know, help people uh, learn about why this telescope is important, Mm -hmm. trying to uh, just create a little bit more awareness of why this is important. I don't um, wish to... I would love to know more about the viewpoint of the indigenous people and the sacredness that they assign to this mountain because I really don't want to come off as insensitive for finding myself instinctually siding more with team science on this one. A telescope to me, it's not quite the same as, you know, say a pipeline or a dam or something that could cause some environmental disaster that could ruin a plot of land. Mm-hmm. A telescope is relatively benign in that regard. It's very passive because it sits there and it collects light. That's all it really does, yeah. right? 
People have to go up to it, though, and mm -hmm. read the data. And so you've got, like, foot traffic as well. Yeah. For these, this mountain, they usually just build a single road. And actually, it's not open to the public at all. Like, these facilities are pretty restricted to scientists only. Um, and it's also not, like, a scenario where uh, you could even say it's some kind of like aesthetic uh like basically the somehow the telescope kind of ruins the view of the mountain mm -hmm. because there's actually the reason why it's uh on this mountain is because it's above the cloud cover so usually cloud cover kind of obscures the mm -hmm. mountaintop so even when you're down below you're not really going to see the telescope this is at what all. makes me even more curious about the indigenous view in this case mm -hmm. like in what way is the addition of this telescope <laughs> yeah. so oh. much well, I'll give you, uh, maybe this is one of their arguments, right? Uh, that one of the arguments is, you know, would you, uh, uh, would you go to uh, the Vatican and just, like, decide, I'm just going to plop something on top of the Vatican? That, that, so that's kind of their uh, This is comparison. a question you shouldn't ask me because I, I, know, I totally I know. would. Exactly. But that's the thing, right? For me, as a, a non-believer... I don't really <laughs> care if someone, if, yeah. if someone decided to put a telescope on top Knock of the Knock the Pope's hat off. It's not going to bother me at all. Yeah. So, that, that, so that, that's, I mean, I, obviously I'm biased. So mm -hmm. I, I'm try, I recognize I'm biased. I feel like you're opinion. probably in the same position as me then that we recognize we have this pro-science bias. And so we're trying very hard to be sympathetic to people who are still clinging to the sacredness I, of things. Absolutely. So uh, definitely, I, you know, I acknowledge my bias. And so Neil deGrasse Tyson has his opinion, which I'm more aligned with his opinion in terms of, I mean, he believes that, okay, somehow the native Hawaiians need to make the decision, the ultimate decision, because it's their land. But before they make a decision, he wants uh, them to be informed about why the telescope is important. And to basically inf uh, give them the information they need to make the, this, the decision. Are they... We already went through the fact that democracy doesn't work, so yeah. I know, I know, I know. Are they Democ credible arbiters of the value of this telescope? I don't know. I don't know if I fall in line with Mr. Tyson on this one. <laughs> but what else are you going to do? I mean, you know, I mean, you're, if you force the telescope on top of the mountain, I mean, you're never going to hear the end of this from protesters. They'll do everything they can to block construction, probably destroy the telescope in some way. Uh, <laughs> I wish that we could all just agree on the advancement of science and how it's not an affront to sacred mm -hmm. landscapes yeah. of any sort, unless it was like, well, we need to drill the mountain in order to do this or that. Mm -hmm. or you know, That's why I'm saying, I, for me, it really hinges on destruction of the environment would be where I would draw the line and say, mm -hmm. you're costing these people something in real observable terms. I'm having trouble with this because you are just like, you're destroying, not destroying fully, but their culture. Like we're talking about their culture and their traditions. And this mountain is a part of that culture and traditions, right? We've, we as colonizers have done that for hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years. And to keep doing that to them, like, I don't know if there is a price that we could pay to keep doing that to them. I, I think it's, I think, you know, we have to atone for our sins at some point and to say like, hey, you're, I don't know, this, this whole conversation reeks of like, you're savages because you believe in the sacred ground 
kind of thing and that oh that that like i don't know but i uh, but cringy. What, but what to me what w- was interesting is that the polling though like because before these protesters made such a big um uh, you know fuss about the secretness of the mountain the majority of native hawaiians actually wanted this because they realize why it's important in terms of i mean obviously they they care about the science of uh kind of the research that comes out of Hawaii, things like that. But suddenly there was this shift the moment of protesters started bringing up the, the topic around the sacredness of the mountain. So That's very interesting too. Just I, I, they, I just they find, were more swayed by that argument. Than... I, I, I find that uh, the polling was just very interesting how it suddenly flipped. By Native Hawaiians, you mean like the indigenous community? In, indigenous, yeah. Okay. So the, the, this polling was done for, uh, to, uh, spoke to indigenous uh, Hawaiians. When, okay. it, when it actually comes to the total population of Hawaii, uh, 64% support the telescope. So this and total would include Caucasians, Asians, everyone. Mm-hmm. So, just specific- so there was a time when the indigenous Hawaiians were in favor of the telescope? Yeah, uh, yeah. So there was a time, like uh, about a year ago, when they were like uh, promoting uh, that they were going to be building the telescope. They did a polling on natives, uh, well, the whole population. But it was just very interesting that majority of natives at that time supported the telescope. Mm-hmm. Do you think it was level of information? Like they just were like, ah, oh, whatever. And well, then all of a sudden it, they it, realized. It could be whatever because there are already telescopes on that mountain. Like there are... I, I, if I'm correct, it's around like 20 telescopes there already. And what they're planning on doing is they're actually planning on decommissioning five of those telescopes in order to build this new one. So it would be interesting to know sort of what changed their minds. Um, but I don't think we're entitled to that information. Well, uh, to me, uh, ultimately, I mean, none of us here will make any decisions for well, them no, anyways <laughs> but I, I i for me this is just around trying to think through kind of the rationale around like if you were the decision maker like how would you actually appease the masses so i don't know it's, to me I, I i've been trying to think through this like logically but uh, i will acknowledge my my bias is very strong in this case so mm-hmm. Yeah, what do you even give people that you've oppressed for many, many? Well, definitely many years? reparations. That's for one. So, is that even enough? I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's such a it's tough. something. Yeah. I mean, to me, I mean, uh, um, yeah, it's it's something better than nothing. I don't know. I don't know. Is it tough? I know that you come at this from a very logical, you know, um, very rigid like standpoint of science. And then I'm sort of, I come from a place of, you know, the native perspective of that sort of thing. So I, I don't know. It's a tough situation, I think. I really want to learn why the telescope is so, such an affront to the sacred. I think that'll be a very interesting thing to learn more about. So if anything, I'm the ignorant one in this case so far until I can gain well, more information. I, I can see why. I mean, it's. If they believe this mountain is sacred, I mean, they're essentially trampling on their sacred. Yeah, but there's uh, no part of nature that is untouched by man at this point. So Unless this is where they have their ceremonies, like specific ceremonies. It isn't. Above the cloud line does sound very high up to it's be. It's really high up. So Routinely going yeah, there for, yeah. for any kind of yeah. rituals. Fair. So, but but I, to me, I mean, 
this is the pro not the problem, but this is why like I don't have very strong uh, association with religion or these uh, spiritual beliefs because Christianity believes the Vatican is the holiest thing in the world. But, you know, uh, the indigenous people believe this mountain is the most holiest thing in the world. And to me, it's kind of just, it's equivalent, whether it's man-made or not. I mean, they view it as the most sacred thing to them. Mm-hmm. But that's why I also have my own biases because I also don't care about the Vatican. <laughs> yeah. Kenny would build the telescope in the Vatican. Of course. Or uh, anywhere yeah. else. But of course, then you have to factor in the history of colonization as I know Sherry is is feeling very strongly at the moment. <laughs> I also have my own biases, obviously. Like, So my family researched our like family ancestry and found um, like uh, Aboriginal, Native, Canadian bloodlines and and that was taken away from us uh so indigenous status was taken away from us when like my great great grandmother married a non-native man and then the government had put in place these laws where you a woman couldn't marry outside of her native status and keep her native status and so like I just think about you know what that must have been like and how much was taken from the native people and like now we're we just keep asking for more and it just mm-hmm. seems it just yeah so that's i mean so i'm biased as well right like like i think about you know my family history and i think about you know what we as canada have done to the indigenous population the first nations people like yeah it just it just it just hits me the wrong way i don't know I really think we should talk about reparations one day because I, <laughs> yeah? I find I, okay. <laughs> I, I find it's a very interesting topic. Um, there, I'd have to learn more about it. Yeah, I think. yeah. We'll, we'll we'll talk about it maybe in a different episode. That would be but, a good topic, I yeah. think. And I only bring this up on it because I don't know. Have you guys watched the the Watchmen, the TV show? Not the, oh, TV, not show. the TV show. No. Okay. So is it any good? It's Should I watch it? The most amazing TV show I've ever seen this no, year. Stop it. And. It Did be- you watch um what was it the the guys the oh the boys the boys yes <laughs> that was a good TV show yeah I watched the boys okay uh, it's better than that it's better than the boys Ooh. oh my so, goodness but basically the, uh, I won't give you the full storyline because I think you need to watch it and kind of experience it but uh, the Watchmen starts with um, a scene in, in Tulsa Oklahoma in I think 1921 this was the uh, do you know about Black Wall Street so no. basically in Tulsa, there used to be this very rich uh, black community. And uh, unfortunately, some white supremacists decided to destroy that city and basically decimated the community. I just hate people. And, <laughs> and, it's, and it basically starts out that way. And so the Watchmen's a alternative history kind of show. So it kind of, uh, it's, it's not, it basically doesn't, uh, follow our history. It's an alternative history kind of TV show. So in this alternative history, there were reparations as part of it. And I think it's a very oh. interesting story uh, as it kind of continues on. But anyways. It's... Oh, so it has nothing to do with what I thought it was, which was the superhero. Oh, it is superheroes. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> there, oh. There, oh okay. <laughs> there are superheroes, but there are also reparations. I'm so confused. <laughs> but there are also reparations. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But uh, that that the rep- the reparations part isn't um uh it, it's part of the show, but it's not like the most core part of the show. 
Uh, but the, uh, it's very interesting because the writer of uh, the Watchmen TV show, the reason why he actually decided to go down, uh, kind of uh, develop this TV show was because he read a uh, article about reparations and he learned about uh, this, uh, this massacre at Tulsa. And he kind of weaved the massacre as part of the story. And it's uh, well, that is it's a neat, very, uh, very interesting, rather and, bold story to integrate into a superhero and series. I, I, I think, mm. I mean, people do need to learn about this massacre. I mean, it's it's it was a pivotal moment in history, and uh, it it does set to me. It sets a pretty good case. There's a associated article with it, and it does set a pretty good case for reparations. So, but we can talk about that. In, in the reparations episode. episode yet exactly. to come. <laughs> exactly. I think I think that would be a good episode. I think we should do it. Yeah. Okay. So, shall we wrap it up? Oh, are you sending us on a good note for the rest of the maybe, year, please? Maybe a funny note. I don't know if it's good. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So, this is from Albert Einstein. Two things are infinite. The universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the universe. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's a good one. That's a good way to start 2020. Yeah. It's going to be a better decade. I promise. So I can't promise. I don't know. Well, onwards and upwards. Happy New Year, guys. Happy On New Year. 2020. How exciting. We lived this long. And we're still alive. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> Maybe not for much longer. We'll see how climate change goes. <laughs> we'll be fine. We'll be fine. <laughs> we'll be broadcasting from a bunker. We'll be good. <laughs> okay. So... Signing off. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Happy New Year. I heard, okay, so I was watching a little profile on Andrew Yang, and yeah. apparently his his group, maybe you've, you've talked about this before, his group is called the Yang Gang. Yep. The <laughs> Yang <No>. Gang. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty awesome. I'm kind of on board with Andrew Yang now. <laughs> oh, it, listen, if I was in the U.S., I would be all on board. The Yang <laughs> be in the Yang gang. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's an interesting he, He's guy. won me over, especially over, like, all the other candidates. So. <laughs> yeah. He was profiled on uh, Hassan Minaj's show mm-hmm. on Netflix. I just find him very, really I find him very practical and, like, he's able to kind of recite facts that is kind of publicly available, and mm. I just feel like that's the type of president I want. Someone that's practical and just says the truth. So, yeah, that'd be a nice change, wouldn't it? And he yeah. wears a lot of hats and pins that say math. Exactly. Make America think harder. Is that what it is? Yeah. I thought it just oh, meant that's math. So good. <laughs> no, that, that's what it stands for. Make America oh. think harder. Oh. It's playing on the MAGA hat, but it's so good. That's really good. Exactly. I, I like this guy. His his, his uh, campaign team is amazing. Except for the one incident where, for some reason, they were opening up this like campaign office. And one of the volunteers wanted to get down on his knees and have Andrew Yang spray uh, whipped cream in his mm. mouth. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> what? And the campaign manager like had to, about that. had to like like run in and was like, let's go, let's go. Let's, <laughs> yeah. Don't make a big deal out of this. <laughs> I heard about that. <laughs> it's like one of the most oh anyways, but I mean stupid things happen, right? I during campaigns. But, he's yeah. just a fun guy. I just really yeah. like him. He just says yes to things. He's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whipped cream out of my kneeling guy, sure. <laughs>